You can hear me okay? Good. All right. Okay, before we start, um, you may have noticed these Creeds and Confessions book books on the table out there. Um, if you, we're going to give them out just one per family. If you want more copies, they're only a couple bucks, I think. So, um, but one per family we'll provide you as a church. Um, I didn't check. I'm looking around because I didn't check with anybody before I announced that. So I'm kind of making a command decision. So um, you can come for me for the money if you need to later. Um, but uh, but these are really helpful. These are our current versions of the creeds and confessions. So they're like this book, just without the forms and prayers. Um, a couple years ago, the, at Synod, we adopted official versions of the URC. So this is the official version. Um, and so if you want a copy, please take one out there. Um, I think they'll be helpful. And then if you want extra copies, we can, we can get those for you as well. Does that sound good? Okay. All right. Pardon me? I think they are online. I think if you go to the URC website, they've put them all there. Or if you go to threeforms.org threeforms.org, they're all up there as well. This is the same thing that's in here. Yeah. So if you have one of these, you don't necessarily need one of these unless you don't want to carry this one around all the time. Um, I think, and the website they made is supposed to be for, uh, good for mobile phones as well. So if you want to look it up on your phone, that's supposed to be set for that. Um, and I think they're coming out with an app at some point as well. So they're making sure we can get it some way, shape, or form. So, all right. Let's uh, open our time with prayer together. Father in heaven, thank you for this day. Thank you for the blessing of the Sabbath day, the blessing that it is to us to be able to rest, to come and worship your name, to be reminded of who you are and who we are in Christ. Thank you also for this time where we can consider uh, another sort of theology Um, that we can take another look at your word and your truth as it's summarized in our three forms. And so we pray that you would bless this time as well, that it would be a benefit to us as we study the canons of Dort and think about the work that was done by faithful ministers to rightly explain your word. So help us in these things, we pray, and bless us, for we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so in our Sunday school, um, what we're going to be doing for the next few weeks is going through uh, the canons of Dort. Um, They're one of our three forms of unity. Um, So we often will talk about the three forms. So if you hear someone talking about the three forms, that's shorthand for the three forms of unity. Okay? Um, And that's what we refer to our confessions as, the three forms of unity. So what are the three forms? Heidelberg Catechism. Canons of Dort, the Belgic Confession. Okay, and in terms of time, they're one, two, three. Catechism in its form is 1563. Confession in its form is 1561, and the. The canons of Dort come from the sin of Dort, 1618-1619. In our form of subscription that all office bearers have to sign, uh, we talk about the fact that we agree with the doctrines taught in the Belgic Confession and the Heidelberg Catechism and an explanation of the aforesaid doctrines that's provided in the canons of Dort. 
Um, and so one of the ways to think about the canons of Dort as we study it is they are actually an explanation of some of the points of doctrine that are communicated in the Belgic Confession. Um, if you want the fullest explanation of the, what it is that we believe, the Belgic Confession is the fullest explanation. The Catechism is a teaching tool to teach those things, and the Canons of Dort explain some of those doctrines. So they're further explanations of some things that are in the Belgic Confession. That's important for us to understand, because the Belgic Confession is a standalone statement, so is the Heidelberg Catechism. The Canons of Dort don't mean to be a standalone statement. They mean to be used in connection to these other confessional statements, because they're only really focusing on five particular points of doctrine. Um, and we'll get into that as we go along. Um, and so that's what we're doing. We're studying one of our forms of unity in our class. We're going to be studying the canons of Dort together. But I just want to make sure everybody has that nomenclature down, because I don't want anybody... Because, you know, that's the kind of thing you hear a couple times, and then you forget to ask the first time, and you keep hearing it, and you don't know, but now you've heard it too many times, you're afraid to ask. So I want to make sure everybody knows what we talk about. So these are our three forms of unity, and we're going to talk about the canons of Dort um, in, our, in our Sunday school class. So I want to talk mostly about the theology of the canons, um, but I think some explanation beforehand uh, will help us get a little bit oriented to what we're dealing with. So I want to talk a little bit today about the history of the canons of Dort and the general outline, the general structure that we'll be dealing with as we go through. Um, and as you might know, the canons of Dort come as a response to five points of the Arminians. Um, and so if you're, if you're interested in the five points of Calvinism, you've come to the right place. The canons of Dort are the place to discuss that. Um, and so th that's what we need to do. Um, an article by my dad on the canons of Dort began this way. Um, he said, what is an Arminian I overheard a woman ask her friend? She read the dictionary's definition, which related the term to the teaching that Jesus died for the sins of all, not just for the elect. And the woman said, okay, we're Arminian. And my dad says, how convenient, I thought, to be able to decide so quickly on a matter that divided a country and culminated in an international six-month synod. Um, you know, th this is actually a pretty complicated question of what, it, what is the difference between Calvinists and Arminians? How did that, how did that controversy can't come up, especially in Holland? And that's what the canons of Dort are. They're, they were the work of an international synod responding to a crisis in the church, um, a crisis in the church over doctrine, uh, what was being taught in, by some in the church on some of the doctrines that had always been believed by the church. Um, and so this was the Reformed response to those serious theological errors. Um, and so I want to I sketch a little bit of a history of, of the canons of Dort and how the Synod of Dort arose, what was, what was the nature of the controversy. Um, well, the controversy starts with Jacob Arminius. Now, you can probably tell by his name that he's going to be the the bad guy in the story. Um, this isn't just a coincidence. Like, he happened to be named Arminius, and they called themselves Arminians. Um, he started this, okay? So it starts with a controversy. He's one of three theology professors in the seminary. And students in the seminary start coming and reporting some concerning things that he's teaching. Particularly after some of his lectures on Romans 7... There's some controversy on what he's teaching and preaching in Romans 7. Um, and then there are more controversies that come up 
again when he teaches through Romans 9. Um, and if, if you know Romans 7 and Romans 9, you know probably why Arminius might have a different take on these passages. But what, what began to happen is, you know, students start complaining. This doesn't sound right. There's rumblings in the churches that some of the things he teaches are not right. And so what, what they did was they established one of the other three theology professors. They tasked him with going and speaking to him and kind of examining him on his views and trying to make sure that his views were orthodox. And so that professor's name was Gomaris. You guys are thinking about kids and you need names, you know, consider Gomaris, okay? Um, so Gomaris comes and examines him, and he's a very trusted, reliable theological professor, and he has several conversations with Arminius, looks through um, what Armin Arminius has said. He hasn't published anything. He never published anything in his lifetime. So this is all based on what he's been teaching. So Gomaris interviews him, and he says, you know, as far as I've been able to tell, he says the right things when I examine him. The problem is his students continue to say that's not what he's saying in class. And people that are hearing his preaching are saying that's not what we're hearing him say in sermons. So there's still some controversy surrounding him. Um, but before you know, anything is really decided, he dies in 1609. Okay, now you might remember I said the Synod of Dort was 1618, 1619. Um, and so you might have thought that his dying would have kind of solved the problem. Um, but he had followers who um, believed what he had been teaching and then started to teach it publicly. Um, and in 1610, okay, they published a document that was known as the Remonstrance. where they're essentially asking for their views to be tolerated in the church. This is very confusing for the sake of us who have to try to teach this out loud because people who believed in the remonstrance were referred to as remonstrants. Okay? So this is hard to articulate, the difference between the remonstrance and the remonstrance, but I'll try. Um, so the, these are the folks that come along and they say, we, we disagree with some of the statements that are in the Belgian Confession or we understand them differently um, and want essentially toleration for our views. So I think there were 42 signers of this document. Um, and they were sort of convinced that they couldn't get a fair hearing. Um, I mean, it... it it kind of makes sense, right? If you're 42 Arminians and you want to go before the Reformed Synod and try to convince the Reformed Synod to agree to your Arminian views, you can see how someone might think we're going to get railroaded at this synod. Um, and so what the Dutch church did was say, what we're going to do is we're going to call an international synod. So it won't just be our folks hearing this matter. We're going to bring in people from around Europe. We're going to bring in other Reformed churches to sit on this synod, and we're all together going to decide. So it won't just be the people who you already know disagree with you. It will be other people from other churches. Now, they still pick the representatives, right? Um, but they did want it to be an international synod. And so that's why sometimes it's called the Great Synod of Dort, because there'd been some other synods of Dort in the history of Holland. But this was the Great International Synod of Dort that met for six months um, from 1618 to 1619. 
So as my dad likes to say, the next time you go to classes or synod as a delegate and you complain that it's going a long time, be thankful it's not a six-month meeting. Um, so they had, they had a lot of different things that they tried to do when they went to this um, synod. It wasn't just about Arminianism. Um, they talked about some other different things as well. They came up with a Dutch translation of the, of the Bible um, that acted as sort of their King James Version in Dutch for a long time. So th- there were other things that the synod took up, um, different various questions. But eventually they got to the question of Arminianism and tried to examine the Arminians on their doctrine. Um, the problem was they were worried what the church was going to do to them if they were caught sort of in their views. And so in, at the synod, they kind of tried to keep moving around and not get caught on anything. And this ended up really frustrating the guy who was in charge of the synod. And so finally he decided, we're just going to kick all you guys out and decide on the basis of what you've written because we really can't get anywhere this way. Um, and so, as the, one of the English representatives said, the remonstrants were dismissed with a powdering speech. So he sort of said, this has all been nonsense, get out. Um, one of the historians t- telling the story of them presenting their case and going on and on and on and on, he said, finally, they got to the point for which everyone was wait- waiting, the end. Um, maybe you'll feel that way at the end of this Sunday school hour. Um, but they were, So they went through it, and they, they just couldn't get a, a clear sense of what they were saying on the floor because they kept trying to move around. And so they said, all right, we're just going to go basically on the base of what you've written, because this was a fairly long document, this remonstrance that they had submitted. Um, but it could be boiled down into five points. Um, and, and this might sound familiar to us, that you could boil down the remonstrance into five points. Um, The first point they made is that God predestines to eternal life those he knows will believe and obey to the end. Okay? So God predestines. You have to have some doctrine of predestination. Oh, boy. You also have to spell it correctly. Um, You have to have some doctrine of predestination. Why? Why? Bible uses the word predestined, so you have to have some doctrine of predestination. So they essentially believe predestination based on a foreknown condition. And that condition is those who will believe and obey to the end. Okay, um, so they essentially believe that God predestines conditions in that sense. Um, he looks down the corridor of time and sees who will believe and obey to the end, and on that basis, he predestines them. Um, it's according to the foreknowledge of God. So that's the condition, which will become important later. Okay, then their, their second point had to do with the atonement. Um, Their second point was that Jesus died for the sins of all, but that his death will be effectual only for those who believe in him. Okay, so Jesus died for all, and it's effective or effectual for all who believe in him. 
Okay? So that was, their, that was their view of the atonement. Jesus died for the sins of all, but his death will be effectual only for those, uh, I should have said, for the sins. This becomes increasingly difficult as we get lower for me to write, but also for you to see and for the sake of my handwriting, which is shaky at best. And when you're left-handed, you can't really do a whiteboard because you erase everything you've just written. Um, so it presents other challenges as well. Okay, so the second point was Jesus died for the sins of all and it's, his death is effectual for all who believe in him. Um, and so that was, that was sort of their second point. Their third point um, had to do with um, depravity. They believe that human beings are born in sin and incapable of doing anything good until they are born again by God's Spirit. Okay? So, I'm just going to call that total depravity. Born in sin and incapable of doing anything um, good until they are born again by God's Spirit. That was their third point, which we call total depravity. Would it be helpful if I put four and five on top? Okay. I hope it won't be overly confusing to everybody, but it'll probably be less confusing if you can actually see it. Okay. Number four was that a person can choose to resist and reject God's grace. So you can choose to resist and reject God's grace. And their fifth point was that further examination is necessary to determine if a person can lose his or her salvation. So their fifth point was really unknown whether we persevere. And of course, the cynical reform people said they did think you couldn't persevere, but they didn't want to say it. Um, reform people are good at being cynical, so that may or may not be true. Um, but taken charitably, that these were their these were their five points. Predestination is based on a foreknown condition. God knows beforehand who will believe and obey until the end, and on that basis, He predestines. Second, that Jesus died for the sins of all, and that His death is effectual for all who believe in Him. Three, that human beings are born in sin and totally incapable of, incapable of doing anything good unless born again by the Spirit of God, which is what we say in total depravity. Four, that you can choose to reject or resist God's grace. And five, they're not sure whether perseverance of the saints is a thing or not. Okay, so those were their five points, and that's what the Synod of Dort was called particularly to respond to. Um, these five points made by the Arminians. And so... If you're on this synod, you have to decide how you're going to respond to these things um, and what way is it going to be most helpful to respond for the sake of the church, right? Because everybody knows how to respond to these things using theological jargon, right? I think we all do that in whatever, whatever business we're in. You know, there, there's some kind of jargon that if, if you're talking to someone else who's in the same business, they understand exactly what you're talking about, 
right? If you're one engineer talking to another engineer, you can use engineering jargon that would make everyone else scratch their heads, right? If you're a carpenter, you can use carpentry jargon that's going to make everyone else scratch their heads. Like, you know, you actually know what the dimensions of a 2x4 are when you say I need a 2x4 here, um, whereas most of us don't. Um, we get very confused when we measure and it doesn't come out right. Um, you know, these kinds of things. And, and so they said, you know, as theologians, we could use all the technical jargon, which would make our job simpler because we all know what we mean by that. The problem is if there's a trouble facing the church, what you want is not just for the theologians to know what all these things mean. You actually also want the church to know what all these things mean so that they can see that the things you're talking about and doing are drawn from the scripture. And so they wanted to answer these things simply and in a way that could be understood for the benefit of the churches. Um, And so they wanted to answer all of these things, but they didn't want to um, necessarily do it with a lot of jargon. And so that's going to be some of it as we come along. But Maybe we can, we'll start with the conclusion and then we'll sort of move to the structure. But they looked at this question, predestination is according to a foreknown condition for those who will believe and obey to the end. And they said that's not what Scripture teaches. We believe that Scripture teaches um, that the choice of those who will be saved is not conditioned by what people may or may not do. Predestination is not on the basis of a condition. And so as a result, we tend to call this what? Which point of the tulip are we on? Unconditional election. You see how we we derive it from responding to that notion from the Arminians. They say it's conditioned on what God knows will be true of us. The Reform said, no, it's unconditional. There are no conditions. God chooses whom he will choose. God chooses people, not conditions. Um, And so we responded as a Reformed church to this notion by saying, no, we actually believe that God chooses not on the basis of any condition in us, but on the basis of what's in him. And that's come to be called unconditional election. Okay, So their second point was that Jesus died for the sins of all and that his death was effectual for all who believe. Okay, The reform said that's not true. Jesus didn't die for the sins of all. Okay, We want to be careful how we formulate this. On the cross, Jesus took upon himself all of the sins of of those God had chosen to save. Okay? Jesus died for all the sins of those God chose to save. Now, what do we call this doctrine? Which, doc, which doctrine of Calvinism is that one? Okay, a lot of people said limited atonement, and Brett said particular atonement. Why did you say particular? You're not wrong. <laughs> Let's, you're right. I remember. You remembered, okay. Um, 
Limited sounds bad, right? Spoken like someone who's talked to Arminians on occasion, right? Limited sounds bad. Um, pardon me? Yeah, yeah. Otherwise you get two pip and that doesn't help anyone. Um, yeah, one of, the, one of the reasons that this, is, this tends to be the most controversial for people. This is the one people have the toughest time with. This, this is the one if you meet someone who says, I'm a four-point Calvinist, this is the point they have a problem with. Um, and it is a little unfortunate that we call it limited atonement because Jesus, it makes it sound like Jesus died for a limited number of people when what we mean by that is Jesus died for many, all those that the Father gave to him, but died for a particular people, not just to make salvation possible. And so we often call this limited atonement, meaning that the efficacy of Jesus' death is limited to those who are elect. Um, But it sounds bad, that's right. Um, And so sometimes people have called it particular atonement or definite atonement. That Jesus died for a definite number of people. And that really the Arminian position is an indefinite atonement. Jesus died for the sins of all who would believe. So he doesn't actually die for anyone. He dies to make salvation possible. Um, That's the way that that can end up coming. Um, So that's the second point. Now third, were you surprised to hear that Arminians believe in total depravity? Okay, good. Somebody just want to make sure people are paying attention. Um, They believed in the statement um, that human beings are born in sin and incapable in themselves of choosing to believe in Christ and obey him. Um, And so they said, yeah, we affirm total depravity. But then they turn around and say, you can choose to resist and reject God's grace. And the reform said, the problem with how you talk about God's grace shows that you don't really believe in total depravity. Um, And that's why if you know anything about the canons of Dort, they're, they're strange in that you have the first head of doctrine, which deals with unconditional election, You have the second head of doctrine that deals with the atonement. Then you have the third and fourth head of doctrine together. So you have one, two, and then three and four are put together. The reason they're put together is because the reform said, what you say about total depravity is negated by what you say about grace. Because if you really believe that human beings are incapable unless they're born again, but that you can resist God's grace, you really don't believe in total depravity. You really believe that you can choose to accept God's grace and then you're denying total depravity. And so they hooked those two together and said, if, you're good, if we're going to talk about total depravity, we also have to talk about irresistible grace. Grace has to be irresistible because we are totally depraved. That's why these two things hang together. Um, and so that's the fourth point. The third and fourth together are total depravity and irresistible grace. And then the fifth point is it's unknown whether we persevere. They said you can't really establish that from Scripture. Um, and the reform said, yes, you can establish that for, from Scripture, and we do believe in the perseverance of the saints. What this is important to note, um, this is important to note because 
the five points of Calvinism are not something we came up with as a summary of what we believe. And that's how it's often treated nowadays when someone finds out you're a Calvinist. That's how they define you. You believe in the five points of, the five points of Calvinism. Um, and we do. We believe those things are true. But we've never said you can summarize what it is that we believe in these five points. And we, we should keep in mind, these five points are not something that we positively constructed. These are five responses to errors. It's the Arminians who came up with five points. We came up with a response to those five points. And that's why it's important for us to understand that about the Canons of Dort. They are not meant to be a full summary of what it is that we believe. They are meant to be responses to theological errors. That's why our form of subscription calls them explanations of some of the doctrines of the Belgic Confession, um, clarifying these things. Um, and so we'll, we're going to go through these doctrines as we go through the canons. But I wanted you to see there were five points that the remonstrance made that the Synod of Dort is responding to. This is not their positive construction of this is how we're going to go about defeating these points. Is that clear? Okay, so they're going to put this document together that's going to be a defense of the, the Christian faith on these points. Um, and so how are they going to go about putting this document together? Well, I already said they didn't want it to be full of theological jargon and be overly complicated. So they wanted it to be the kind of thing where people could understand it. And so they wrote it in simple sentences. Now, when you read the Canons of Dort, it might not feel like they're simple sentences. And the problem is because in Latin, it's easier to write long sentences that are very clear. But then when you try to translate them into English, you get these long run-on sentences that aren't as clear in English. Um, and so that's why it, act, it actually is a simple document in Latin, but unfortunately that doesn't help most of us. So we have to translate it into English. And so what I'm gonna, what I'm gonna do is we go on and get into the, the canons. My dad has done a, 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 another translation of it to try to make it simpler. Um, and so maybe we'll look at our version and his version side by side to try to make it simpler for us. Um, so it was meant to be simple. It was meant not to be filled with uh, theological jargon. Um, it was divided into five heads to respond to the five positions of, our, of the Arminians. Um, but what they wanted to do was make each doctrine self-contained. What they didn't want to do is explain the unconditional election parts of it, and then, and then say, all right, now you have to flip over to the depravity part to see what we're saying about this. They didn't want people to have to kind of flip back and forth. They wanted each head of doctrine to be completely self-contained um, in explaining the others. And so there's going to be repetition as it goes along. And that's helpful for us because then you don't have to flip around and we get the same thing again and again. So that was one of the things they wanted to do. Um, the other way they wanted to proceed through the articles... Um, and so you have heads of doctrine with a number of articles. I'm going to erase this, assuming you've either written it down or given up on trying to read my handwriting. Um, so you have these heads of doctrine, so each of the five points in a head of doctrine. Um, and they all start the same way. They all start with, so you have a head of doctrine... And then they all start with common Christian convictions. Common Christian convictions. Because one of the things they wanted to show is the Reformed faith is not 
uniquely born in the 1500s. The Reformed faith is meant as a recovery of biblical doctrine that's always been believed in the churches. One of the things that really concerned them is some of the things the Arminians were saying sounded like some of the things that Pelagius had said in the 5th century. Um, They were worried that this was a repeat of old heresy. And there had been old church members who had fought against this heresy. Um, And so they wanted to show, we believe in common Christian convictions. We're not starting from a, a point of weird, unique, reformed things. We're talking about things that Christians have always believed. And then we work from these common convictions to the particular reformed doctrine we're defending. So the heads will work this way. It'll start with common Christian convictions and work towards the reformed doctrine. And then usually you'll get one article that states what we believe in our doctrine. There'll be one article that talks about this is what we believe about election, and there'll be another one that says this is what we believe about reprobation. If you don't know what those words mean, you're in the right place. We're going to get to them as we go along. Um, But it'll say, like, here's the definition. So to work from common conviction to the Reformed doctrine, then you'll get the Reformed definition, the Reformed definition of what we mean by that. And then we'll work from those to elaborate, explain, and apply the Reformed doctrine. So once we've established what it is, we'll elaborate what we mean by that. We'll explain it further. What was the third word I used? Apply. Right? They wanted this to be applicable to the lives of God's people. Doctrine is never meant to be something that just makes our eyes roll back in our heads and doesn't have any connection with our lives. Um, These deal with important parts of the Christian life. Um, How are we to live in light of these truths? Does knowing that you're elect affect how you live? And how should it affect how you live? Right, that's an important question. That's a question that Arminians are often raising with us. Um, You need to be able to answer those questions. How does the perseverance of the saints, how does that doctrine help you live? Those are important questions. We need to be um, examining them. How does this relate to our assurance? If God only saves the elect, how can you be sure you're elect? Right? How do these things relate to Christian assurance? Um, that's going to be a concern. Um, how do the means of grace help us in these areas? That's going to be a concern we come back to again and again. How should these be preached? Um, how should we talk about these things? So it's going to get into assurance. How, how do these doctrines relate to our assurance as Christians? Um, And one important thing it's going to do is defend God's faultlessness and his justice. Because one of the things that the Arminians were saying is the Reformed doctrine makes God the author of sin. It puts God at fault. It makes God unjust. Um, Those were some of their arguments. So all throughout, what, what the doctrines want to do is not just apply it in ways that will be helpful for us, but also in ways that will defend God. defend his holiness, defend his faultlessness in both, in both election and reprobation, in salvation and condemnation, defend him in his faultlessness and defend him in his justice. Not because God needs for us to defend him, 
Um, but because, as it's been said, you know, even a dark dog barks when its master's attacked. Um, and so we want to be speaking for the Lord. And so the reform said it's not right that people come and say God is at fault or God is unjust. If there's fault, it's always ours. Um, but God is unfailingly just in everything that he does. And you can see that even through the five points of Calvinism. And so they're going to do that. And then throughout, they're also going to be responding to the Arminian positions. So this is constructed very much with Arminians in mind. That'll come very clearly as they positively formulate the doctrine and in the rejection of errors that come at the end of every article. So every article will pos- every head of doctrine will positively state what it is that we believe, and then at the end it will reject specific Arminian errors. And particularly when we're rejecting errors at the end is when the Bible will come in the most often to show that the positions the Arminians hold are not biblical. So Bible references will be the most prevalent in the rejection of errors. And usually each rejection actually is touching on a particular article. So there'll be a rejection of error and then they'll say, this is really responding to the error of getting the definition wrong. Or this is responding to their, this elaboration or this explanation or how they apply that. Um, and so we'll look at how, which, which rejection relates to which article. Because they can be kind of confusing in that way. Um, and so that's the general structure that it will follow through. So it can look to us at first glance like it's just a bunch of articles and what are we to make of this? But there is, there is a method to the madness. You start with the common Christian convictions that everybody who calls himself a Christian has always held to. And you move to the Reformed doctrine, you define it, then you elaborate, explain, and apply it with sensitivity to assurance, to matters of fault and justice, um, to matters of the means of grace and how they function in the lives of Christians, how they're to affect our Christian living. They're, they're immensely practical. Um, they're practical for the lives of God's people. And so hopefully, even though this has been pretty heavily doctrinal as an introduction, hopefully we'll see as we go along that this is not just doctrine for doctrine's sake. This is doctrine for the sake of defending the faith, but also helping Christians to live their lives in the assurance that you can know that you're saved, that you can know that God has, has put his love on you from the, before the foundation of the world, that he sent his son to die for you, that his son having died for you, that salvation has been applied to you by the work of the Holy Spirit, and that work of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit cannot fail. Um, that's immensely practical for God's people. Um, and what it, what it reminds us is that salvation actually centers not on us, but on God. The salvation is in far safer hands than in our hands. Um, because it's really the Arminian way of looking at things that leads to a complete lack of assurance and that you'll ever hold true to the end. Um, and what, what the, the true biblical doctrine does is say, from first to last, it's God's work. Redemption was planned by God before the foundation of the world. Um, redemption was accomplished in history when God's son came into the world to die for sinners. Um, that, salva- that saving work is applied to us by the work of the Holy Spirit in history to all those who belong to the Lord, and that work of the triune God will not fail. 
right? What God has planned from before the foundation of the world, done in time and history in his son and by his spirit, is not going to fail. Um, He started it, he's going to finish it. Um, And Christ is the author and the perfecter of our faith, um, as the Bible clearly teaches. So we're going to see that this is the way the Bible tells us to understand our salvation and grounds our assurance not in what we do, what we believe, how we persevere, but who God is, what he does, and how he keeps his people to the end. Um, and, And so I hope that we'll find as we go along, this is not just you know, regurgitated seminary, you know, highfalutin doctrine, but actually has really grounded applications in the life of the believer uh, for the things that we know and believe. Um, so that's, that's a little bit of a beginning um, to this teaching. Are there any, any questions about any of that? Yes, ma'am. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> I think, you know, charitably, we always want to say, even heretics usually think that don't think of themselves as heretics. I mean, I don't think he went around saying, I'm going to subvert the true doctrine of the church. I think he believed he thought he discovered something about the true doctrine. Um, part of the problem was he never published anything during his lifetime. But when he died, there were plenty of things he'd written and put in a drawer because he knew they would be controversial that came out after he died that made it pretty clear that he had held some unorthodox views. And his, his, those who followed him were much more likely, were much more outside about it. But that also had to do with how things had changed in Holland at the time. Uh, the Reformed had not been really in control of the government of Holland. And things changed about the time this happened to allow reform people to have influence on the government because the government had to call a synod and the remonstrants knew that as long as the government wouldn't call a synod, they, there wouldn't be an official pronouncement that they were out of bounds. And until there was an official pronouncement that they were out of bounds, they could always kind of play this game of what we want to do. But there was an overturn in the government. The reform suddenly had an inroad to the government and got them to call a national synod. And then they were able to do this and kind of put them to the task and demand all right, we want to know what you believe and be out with it. Um, the other problem that comes is the Arminius, Arminian movement is not a uniform movement. So it wasn't like Arminius believed one particular kind of Arminianism and so did all of his followers. Um, he believed certain things you can see from his writings, um, but there were some people who believed kind of what he thought and then just like wildly different things than what he had thought. Um, and some things that were kind of positively Pelagian which means that you, know, you have everything in yourself to come to God. Um, you have everything in yourself necessary to come to God and be saved, um, which was rejected centuries ago by several church councils, <laughs> declared that wrong. And so there are some people who are like totally Pelagian, some people are semi-Pelagian, where you're, bo- you're mostly bad, but you have a little bit of good in you that can come to God. Um, some were what we call semi-Augustinian. There's, there's a lot of bad and a very little bit of good. <laughs> so, um, but, so they weren't a uniform group, and that's why some of the rejection of errors will be a little more scattershot in its response because it's saying we're responding to this and to that. So it wasn't a uniform movement. So I don't think he was trying to subvert the church. I think he, was probably, he probably thought that he'd recognized something that the church had missed. Um, he seems to maybe be influenced by Molinism, um, a kind of middle knowledge, um, 
ways of working that show that maybe he was thinking in certain directions, but we really don't know because we don't know everything about what he believed and taught. So, I mean, heretics are usually not trying to subvert the church. They usually think other people are wrong. Um, And that's why we always have to go and do what the scriptures tell us to do, is test the spirits and see if they are of God. Um, And that's really, I think, what the synod did. Take what they were saying, test it against God's word, and see if their opinions could be reconciled with God's word. Then the conclusion of the International Synod was clearly, no, you can't reconcile these notions with God's word. Yes? Yeah, I mean, there's nothing, yeah, is there overlap between what he taught and, and previous heirs of Rome or elsewhere? Yeah, I mean, that's part of the problem with, with heresy, right? There's nothing new under the sun. Usually someone's taught it before. Um, you know, growing up as the son of a church historian, that's been kind of the interesting thing, is he, he's always saying, this new thing is an old thing. This new thing is, is, a, is an old thing. Um, and so, yeah, there are, there are things that, I mean, you can, you can pretty much justify anything you want to believe on the basis of church history. You can go back and say, someone else believed this. Um, and that's why, that's why the Reformed were so adamant of saying, that's why scripture has to be your only authority. We can't get into the business of counting noses or saying, this is an ancient way of thinking. The, the question is, is it a scriptural way of thinking? Um, and that's why the, one of the real geniuses of the Reformed tradition was to say, we need to get back to saying, the word of God is the only authority. There aren't any other authorities. All right, I'm over my time, so if, if you have a child, please collect your children. Um, if you don't have children, then you can stay and we can continue to, to talk and ask questions. But um, if you have kids, please go get them so the teachers can be released. Okay? Yes? Yeah, some of them were, they had examined some of their writings to say, is this, how representative is this? And I think that was part of the frustration of the reformers was there, there were so many various offshoots that they couldn't possibly respond to all of them. Um, so they took representative samples and responded to those. Yeah. Anyone else? All right, thank you. We'll come back and do this next time.